This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode has a disclaimer that it is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It is based on my years of experience in the coding and billing industry. It is based on my research and my thoughts alone. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I am your host today. I want to thank our sponsors over at Ozark Institute. Ozark Institute is an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. As many of my listeners know, we love to focus on healthcare education, work-life balance, and sometimes those things meet, don't they? So I want to thank our listeners for always supporting us in whatever topics we present And I wanted to give a huge shout out to all of my guests that have appeared on the show the last several seasons. We are about to enter season six. This is episode one of season six. And as you know, many of my listeners, we do love to talk about behavioral health and mental health in every season. So we have picked episode one to start out talking about behavioral health. But this time, when it comes to the billing and coding, we're going to focus on auditing. I have my very special guest, Lori Buzarellis. I am so excited to have her on the show. Lori is a healthcare consultant with a special interest in supporting the unique business needs of behavioral health practices. She works with psychiatrists and behavioral health providers to improve practice revenue and address compliance issues. She helps providers understand their revenue and the operational changes so they can meet managed care and government payer requirements as well as state and federal laws. We need to, as an organization in behavioral health, understand our documentation, understand the coding guidelines and accuracy, of course, of payment. There are many areas and levels of behavioral health billing, whether it's facility or in the office, so we need to understand the differences. So today, we are going to discuss what triggers a behavioral health audit. Stay tuned for my conversation with Lori Buzarellis. The barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and clerical issue. I want to thank OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. This optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time a patient must wait. The platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and electronic medical record alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Off-parency's reports can be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. 
direct insurance verification, and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to authparency.com. That's www.authparency.com. And get started today with this amazing tool. Well, as mentioned, I have my special guest, Lori Buzarellis, and I am so happy to have you on the show. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. It's my pleasure. And we, of course, haven't met in person, but I was reaching out to find an individual, someone like yourself who has um, a lot of experience in behavioral health. I wanted to make behavioral health my first topic of our new season. So we are, of course, in season six, episode one. And I always do an episode when it comes to mental health and then the business of healthcare when it comes to those providers. Um, But I did, of course, uh, see that you were at HealthCon like myself this last year. So how was that? Uh, How was your experience at this virtual HealthCon this year? Oh, I would have loved to have been in person like we were able to be in 2021. Um, But I had a wonderful experience and a great turnout and a number of questions. Um, I I covered a lot of topics in my presentation and the questions that arose were so valuable and so deep that we could do a whole nother topic just on answering the questions. I imagine. So so. that, that was really fun. I imagine so. Well, I'm so glad that you were, you agreed to come on my podcast so we can share a little bit about you personally and what you do and your history in healthcare, but also see if we can do some of that education today when it comes to behavioral health. So tell me a little bit about yourself, first of all, and how long you've been in healthcare. Sure. Well, I'll age myself right away by saying I've been in healthcare since the late nineties. I was at graduate school in the, in the early nineties, my career started in academic medicine, actually on the school of medicine side of healthcare. And I was lucky enough to be, te- be in both the billing office working under the director of patient financial services and billing for the School of Medicine, and also tasked with starting a low-income clinic in an underserved community in the Midwest. And that was really fun. It was a new venture for the school, a new venture for the physicians, And really right out of graduate school, my first exposure to managed care contracting, recruiting physicians, operations, creating a charge master, all those kind of things. From there, I moved to another academic setting, but I was on the hospital side. And in that environment, I worked for the first time with psychiatrists, neurologists, psychologists in both inpatient and outpatient programs, outpatient clinics, the whole gamut, um, employed physicians, school of medicine physicians, and um, really got my first exposure to working with that, those physician specialists and the unique opportunities it presents and also the unique needs of both the patients and the, and the providers that, that are offered. And over the years, then um, my, my career took some twists and turns and I went into consulting in 2015 And that's the time I pursued um, adding a CPC credential and learned the coding side of it more thoroughly, more accurately, and 
The behavioral health component, I think just having that understanding of those providers and their needs that um, my consulting business, both um, with the person I worked for before and now I'm in my own firm, um, those people kind of seek me out. And uh, just through word of mouth, I've ended up working with a lot of psychiatrists, multi-specialty behavioral health providers, intensive outpatient programs. Most of the work I do now is for people in private practice. So, and a lot of psychiatrists. (laughs) Wow. That's quite a great resume there. And I'm just grateful that I get to, I got to meet you and, and that you agreed to be on the show because it is a passion of mine. Uh, A lot of people know since last season, I had a four part series on behavioral health, that it's a passion of mine. I do. I did suffer from it myself um, due to a work experience several years ago. And in my family as well. I have family members who suffer from it. And I think in some way we all kind of suffer from behavioral health issues. It's not true. Especially during the pandemic. I think it has posed challenges for people like never before Um, people professionally, personally in their families, people suffering from long COVID complications, um, just really unprecedented time, both for the caregivers and and for humanity and for patients. So a lot of challenges right now. Unique, I agree. unique, different types of challenges than I've seen in my career. And working with insurance companies has become incredibly challenging for these providers. Incredibly, incredibly challenging. More than any that I work with. I completely understand. I had a little bit of a taste of that previously with a client we had um, that asked us to come in and help with, you know, some of their backlog of billing and most of it's E&M. So it was, it was a, an easier challenge, you know, to, to overcome, but then you have, there's a lot of issues I feel too, like with credentialing and just different things that come into the mix with some of these practices that they're in, in this, they don't know why they're not getting paid and they don't know where the challenges are. So they get into a mess, right? I agree. And I agree. Like, There's a, a depth of, um, or maybe just a lack of understanding and a depth of complexities when we get into, especially a multi-specialty behavioral health practice, where we have providers of different, um, with different credentials operating under the same tax ID, mm-hmm. but billing under their own NPI and different taxonomy codes and different fee schedules based on provider type and getting those people credentialed correctly, loaded into the uh, billing system correctly so that their taxonomy is correct and they are paid correctly. Mm -hmm. There are so many opportunities for error Mm -hmm. just in setting up an electronic data interchange um, that then people get a long ways down the road sometimes before they find the errors or discover the errors. So yes, it is a unique practice setting that I guess we end up just with some very specific needs and um, learning gaps, perhaps like just the people just don't understand how the revenue cycle works, how reimbursement works, what their obligations are under their contracts, what their obligations are if they choose to be a Medicaid, a Medicare or a TRICARE provider and so forth. I completely agree. And so when it comes to this element. Now you mentioned you went to go into coding and you've been a consultant for a while and trying to explain that it's not just, okay, you have to get credentialed with this provider. You have to also know, okay, what is the proper code 
Um, if there's guidelines to follow, what does the documentation say, right? What does the, the mm-hmm. insurance company say about it? And that could be daunting for a provider who's just trying to see the patient. They're just trying to offer some assistance. They're trying to get them a prescription, get them the services they need. And then they hit these roadblocks, right? Correct. And I also find that these providers are operating on very thin margins that the behavioral health carve out contracts have really marginalized those providers in some pretty low reimbursement rates, even on commercial, um, commercial reimbursement and the rates become unsustainable and they get in a dilemma of not wanting to terminate a contract because they have a commitment to their community, a commitment to their established patients, and yet they can't budge on renegotiating contracted rates. And they end up with rates that are, that are unsustainable. They can't pay the bills. They can't um, pay the providers and, and the billing and support a private practice. Exactly. Um, when we talked to a previous practice, that was the issue too. And, and I have heard of some, you know, going into to direct care, which I've seen happen a lot more um, because of that situation. And there are still going to be patients who will need that and they will pay out of pocket. But then there's, of course, those that rely on their insurance coverage. And so it's, it can be a daunting task. Um, I know we both talked about this when we were discussing this OIG article that came out. Pretty fascinating mm-hmm. stuff on this audit. Um, that we talked about here. And since you're an expert in this area, I would love your thoughts on some of these issues that of course trigger these audits and suggestions to help practices succeed in being compliant. So first of all, let's tackle some of the things that I always identified in that article frequency, right? So this is an issue that's not just discovered in this audit. It's in, it's in the actual payer requirements, right? So payers have a requirement on frequency, don't they? They do, but it tends when we look at the frequency issues, I think we have to actually go back a step and look at the issue of treatment planning. Yep. And I think there is a huge gap in understanding by providers of what their obligations are to provide a treatment plan. Medicare is very clear. And if you dig into policies and procedures that um, the big insurance companies have as well, United Healthcare, Optum, Anthem, Blue Cross, whatever it's called in your region, Regents, Providence, when we dig into the commercial payer policies, we find that they've also defined a need for a treatment plan. So I find behavioral health providers grapple to understand what that obligation is. They feel comfortable that they know in their head what the treatment plan is and that they're executing it, they're living it, and you can see it just by the care they're providing. And sometimes explaining it from a medical standpoint and saying, okay, what if you had a knee replacement uh, and your physician referred you to physical therapy? The physical therapist has a protocol for a knee replacement rehab, and they follow that protocol. And the intent is that you do a lot of work up front and a lot of visits up front. And then hopefully as you start to improve and heal and get better that those visits taper and eventually go away and pay pressuring providers to have that same kind of model. And I think that's a hard concept for 
behavioral health providers to embrace. Um, I think philosophically they embrace it, but the way that they document the care and cognitively, like how they think about how they treat their patients, um, I don't think they like to be in that narrow, the confines of a written document. And the insurance companies and Medicare are very specific in their expectations about setting a treatment plan, establishing goals, and requiring that the patient agree to that treatment plan and the provider agree and take responsibility for that treatment plan. And that's what drives frequency. So if the patient is going to be seen weekly for three months, and then maybe uh, once every two weeks or once a month, and then eventually, unless there's a crisis, that the the hope would be that the patient would, would taper care and it would reduce. And that if the patient isn't getting better, isn't showing improvement, that then the opportunity to revisit the treatment plan and revise the treatment plan and try something different. That is excellent explanation. And I think it's so important that there has to be a way to kind of get the certain providers to see that. And I like, even without being this specialty, other specialties, I tell my surgeons, you know, I know it's in your head and I know you're seeing a lot of patients, but think about the fact that the insurance company isn't in the room with you, right? They don't know what you're doing. So the only way they're going to know is if it's down on paper or it's in the EMR. Um, and we know you have a treatment plan. They just want to see it in writing so they can validate the insurance that the patient's paying for, patient pay for this policy in order for that to pay out you know, they have to have these, these things detailed for them so they can confirm that yes, the details of this policy have been carried out and it's approved. So it's just a basic, you know, you did this, we need to prove it, so to speak. <laughs> so that's when right. I, very, a simple, very simple level, right? Just what it's, what's happening right. here. Right. And uh, then for the documentation, as you mentioned, the goals and the treatment plan, and like you mentioned, physical therapy, it's, it's a common thing. In most coverage guidelines, this is what I say too, I think a lot of practices, they have like a receptionist and they have someone who takes the patient's insurance card, they put it in the system, maybe they call to get benefits, but they don't get deeper than that. They don't really dig deeper or they get an authorization for something, but then they don't look at the policy specifically, the coverage guidelines to know that there are specific criteria within that code, right? Even if the code's approved. Correct what right. diagnoses are approved um, and how often can they have this done and all of these things. And when I did denials, I couldn't believe how many of those things were ignored. Correct. <laughs> just absolutely not. There's just no awareness, mm-hmm. no upfront conceptual awareness, I guess. And then, then the problems pile up and get so deep and so overwhelming that they don't, often get addressed in a constructive and meaningful way. And I think it's hard once practices are established and have their, their routines and their way of functioning change is very, very hard for most people. And when you're asking a group of people to change, um, it's even more challenging. So I think defining policies and procedures that are driven by a very detailed understanding and working knowledge of all the payer requirements. So if, if a group has managed care contracts and they have 
Maybe they provide care for Medicare and Medicaid as well. They need to not just understand the Medicare guidelines, but they also need to understand the payer guidelines and the payer requirements and make sure that the policies and procedures, the way their staff do their job on a daily basis, the way the caregivers document in the chart to make sure that those things, that the way people do their job meets at a minimum, the bare minimum that's required in those policies and procedures. Absolutely. I remember back in the day, I mean, like when we had paper charts, we had one receptionist, I was the coder and it was just the two of us. And we saw 50 patients a day. We got all the coding done. We got all of the verification done. We got authorizations done correctly. And nowadays it's like, you feel like you have to have three, four, five, six people up front and it isn't Mm -hmm. always the case. So you feel like you're losing money. Well, yeah, you are because you're overstaffed. Um, you're, you're having so many people do the same job when you could really have two or three, maybe very well-trained people who are diligent and they can get a lot done in a, in a day Mm -hmm. if they're organized. And that's my Mm -hmm. thing is I go into a practice and they ask me to come in and help them with their, their flow or, or help them figure out where they can make changes. That's one of the first things I look at is how many people are doing a certain job and are they doing it efficiently? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of times is the fact that, you know, for me, I, I try to train my staff too. you know, I, I feel like we need to have certain people on certain tasks that they do well. Some per- people may not do well in a certain task. So you learn to delegate certain things to certain people, but at the same time, help them see the big picture. This is why we do this. This is why we do this. And we can't just sit here and wait for it to happen. We have to be diligent and communicate with the providers. They need to know, okay, this insurance only allows this to be covered. So if a patient comes through here, we need to make some, we need to come to us first before you order anything, right? (laughs) Let us tell you what can be done so we can communicate with the patient. They're not going to want to pay out of pocket if they don't have to. And if we don't tell them, right, then they're going to have to, we're going to have to write it off. And so there's no communication. Right. Just helping people at that very front point of contact with the patient, understanding the difference between insurance eligibility Mm -hmm. and verification of benefits. Like what are the benefits that the patient is eligible for under the plan that they chose to purchase if they come to this practice and see this provider? Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's, it's It's a lot of steps to get correct before the patient's even shown up. Absolutely. And that takes, you know, forethought, foresight, and it takes organization. And so when a practice asks me personally, I say, okay, well, if you can at all help this, you know, if you can make the time, I understand you have phone calls coming in, different things happening at the same time. I had to have a lot of notes in front of me. And even if I couldn't talk to that person at that time, I would say, I'm going to call you back. So I will have a note to call them back. There's so many moving pieces, but you have to get organized. You have to know, okay, I have to call at least two days in advance to verify coverage to make sure sometimes the day before or the day of you have to know it has to be done. But at the end of the day, nothing should get done or ordered before we have this in place. Mm-hmm. And back right. in the day, it was like harder, right? It was all on paper. We have it so much easier now. And I feel like people are still complicating a job that can be so automated. Yeah, there's a lot of steps though. And I think- yeah. We, we pressure a lot of, we pressure staff to do it without a big picture understanding. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes there's those staff are in high pressure 
jobs, high contact, often high turnover, um, doing a lot of detail work in a maybe overstimulating environment, and then not necessarily understanding the implications of their errors Mm -hmm. or, or even if they just say, oh gosh, I can't quite get all those details today because I need, I've got two people in front of me and one on the phone and, um, under just making teaching people. I think that's a huge opportunity we all have is to help people understand the big picture, how their job is important to the success of the business overall, how their ability to be accurate and precise in what they do, how that contributes to the practice getting paid. I 100% agree. Uh, They need to know how they are accountable to that. And, you know, sometimes they think it's just a, a job that nobody values, but I tell them all the time how valuable they are. I was in that position and I know how hard it was. That's where I started, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. us did start in that in that world where we were starting from that first spot. We're taking data in and we are helping the patient get seen. And then maybe we move down the road, we decide to move up in a different, different department. But most of us do remember the stresses that these individuals are facing. There are a lot of challenges for sure. When we look at, um, you had asked me about the OIG audit that just came out of New York City, where the psychiatry practice was um, fined $1.1 million. It was big news here in March for anyone that's in behavioral health. And um, I'd love to circle back and talk about that a little bit more if if you're interested. One of the issues you had asked me earlier when we were visiting was what kind of issues trigger this sort of behavioral health audit. And if your listeners haven't read the audit yet, I would recommend at a minimum, if you're in behavioral health, at a minimum, read the summary document. But I highly recommend you read the details because I think it's easy to read the summary and feel like, oh, I've got this. Our practice is fine. I understand. But when you read the details and really step back, I think that circles back to the issues we were just talking about. And those are that people don't understand exactly what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't understand the details. They don't understand the deficiencies Mm -hmm. when these these topics are raised at a high level. So when we dig into what it means to not have a treatment plan, or incident two in the behavioral health setting, I think when we dig into some of those issues, um, we find that there are a lot more um, errors going on should that audit have happened in a different practice. And people like to think, oh, I've got this, I've got this. Absolutely. So one of the questions you had asked me is um, what issues trigger it? And I would point to data claim errors and complaints. Mm-hmm. So starting this New York city provider that we were talking about, that person came to the awareness of the justice department through data. Mm-hmm. So they had billed the most psychotherapy claims. The, they were the highest billing provider in the nation for psychotherapy. This was pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so their data stood out. Right. So as, as soon as their data was identified as an outlier, they were sent uh, to audit. So that would be an example. Other examples are um, claim errors, where we see we touched on that earlier in our conversation, where we talk about um, denials, repeated 
I think ADRs or additional documentation requests that come to a practice either are not handled correctly or they're handled perhaps without a great deal of, of thought or policy and procedure, and they expose weaknesses in the practice that then trigger a deeper audit. And then, of course, there's always the issue of complaints, whether it's a complaint from a patient, a patient family member, caregiver, or uh, an employee identifying something that's wrong. So those are the three issues that I find. I think they, they cover all specialties, but especially behavioral health in, in my experience. That's excellent. And yeah, I'm glad you circled back to that. That's part of what I wanted to talk about is first identify, of course, some of the things that they mentioned in the article that we can improve on. But yeah, it's important to know what triggers it because these things were there and they're the same things that we see in many different uh, audits that we do maybe externally before the government gets involved, <laughs> which we hope doesn't uh-huh. happen. There's some of the same things that have always been there, but you, we try to educate them right as consultants. We try to let them know that even though you may feel this way, you don't want to trigger an audit because what's going to happen when, when that happens, they're going to look at everything. Correct. So I like to encourage practices and providers to look at the, as they look at their practice billing trends and CPT billing as a whole, that they also look at it by physician, by provider and start to sort out, do you have people working medically unlikely days? Is, are they um, covering 24 hours of billed care in a seven hour workday? Like there are some work RVU triggers and just CPT code triggers that can really just alert people before right away at the practice level, people are monitoring those things and keeping an eye on the data. And often it's not everybody. Sometimes it's just one or two providers and doing some targeted education to those providers and making sure that they are billing within the norm, the expected norms for their specialty and their amount of hours that they're committed to work in the practice and that it makes sense, that it's logical. Does their schedule make sense? Does their, do their work RVUs make sense compared to the schedule that they have blocked? 100%. Oh my goodness. I'm glad you said that because it's one of my biggest pet peeves is when we look at those things and it just, from a schedule standpoint, can you, how can you justify this? If someone looked at this on the outside, what, what questions would they have for you? Like, what do you, if you were on the outside looking at this, what would you think? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And incident two, I think yeah. continues to challenge people, especially in behavioral health. We have a lot of students. Mm-hmm. We end up with um, not just not often medical students, but, but students of psychology, social work, uh, licensed professional counselors in training, various master's level counselors in training. And people take often a lot of liberties or wide latitude in what they consider billable mm-hmm. without confirming what the actual laws are in their state exactly. and what the payer policies are, whether those are federal policies under Medicare, state policies under the Medicaid plan, or the contractual requirements, um, or TRICARE. Uh, TRICARE is really a tricky one. TRICARE, often people say, well, I'm following CMS guidelines. Mm-hmm. TRICARE has their own guidelines, and especially especially in mental health. If you're billing TRICARE, 
you need to understand the TRICARE guidelines for every CPT yes. code that you bill. Uh, the documentation requirements, the approved provider types, the place of service that the services are allowed, uh, the reimbursement types, whether students are allowed to see patients. Um, there are a lot of issues around that that can expose a practice to, to risk and to recoupments if they're found in violation. Right. And like I said, and going back to organization, there I've seen successful practices who have all these things together and they, it's not like they're going to just remember it. They have it documented somewhere. They have a list somewhere or a spreadsheet somewhere. They know, okay, like for this particular payer, I have to know these things. And so when they decide to schedule a patient, they look at the insurance. That's the first thing they look at is what can I do? What can I do? And those are things that can be done. It seems daunting, but I'm a huge on organization, huge on spreadsheets myself. I don't know about you, but I love spreadsheets mm-hmm. to keep my data in order. Yes. Um, another issue I observed in 2021 with a client had to do with psychological testing. Mm-hmm. So there's a policy and procedure that I think I it, the American psychological psych. Yeah, I get psychological association. So the group of psychologists, the professional society for psychologists has some excellent resources on their website that delineate exactly how psych testing is supposed to be billed. And most commercial payers and Medicaid managed care plans, in my observation, have also adopted that. So they look at psychological testing as an encounter. So even though it, it occurs over many days, dates of service, that all those codes end up billing MS-15 to use the paper lingo. To Obviously, that would be different if you're submitting electronically, as most people are. But that it goes out as an encounter bill, not each unique date of service. And lots of these therapy-based EHRs have overlain billing modules that aren't quite capable of doing that. So providers are having to do workarounds. So then you end up, if you pull an audit on one of those records, they've modified their procedure to follow the billing guidelines, but their EHR isn't capable. So the dates don't all match. There's just opportunity for error there that we need our our, um, electronic health record and billing systems to kind of catch up Mm -hmm. and, and people's policy and procedures within their practices to catch up to the billing model that's been um, put forth by the psychology professional society. And that if anyone's doing psychology billing, hopefully by now they've got it figured out, (laughs) but if not get on that website because they have great, great resources. I'm all about it. I'm telling you, like I tell my coders and my billers that work for me, uh, when we have a specialty and we do orthopedics and, you know, we do cardiology, some of the, more of the surgical specialties, really, but we do, we do everything if we need to, but we kind of, our, our team focuses on that. But I always say, go to their, the actual specialty websites, even though we may have to look at CMS or different things, there's such valuable mm-hmm. information on there. Um, understanding mm-hmm. the societies and some of the clinical information on there. Um, I did a podcast recently on understanding why Medicare, um, where the LCD policies came from, a lot of people think, and maybe providers think this, that Medicare just makes it up and it just comes out of thin air. And 
I have to tell them, no, if you go and open an LCD policy, you're going to notice all the references. And a lot of times the references they get for their policies come from these organizations, websites. Right, right. Those groups are working hard on behalf of providers Mm -hmm. to put in reasonable policies and procedures. And that's part of understanding the big picture, Mm -hmm. I think, and helping I I think it's also important to help providers understand the difference between clinical or medical policies Uh and reimbursement policies. Absolutely. And I I think that's an opportunity as well to understand like psychological testing is approved for these types of conditions under these types of scenarios. It's considered medically necessary for these diagnoses. And this is the situation. Then that would be the medical policy. And then separate from that is the reimbursement policy. This is how, these are the codes that are payable. This is how you submit them. These are the provider types that are allowed and so forth. And understanding that those are distinct and different and that the medical and clinical policy is set by their peers, is set by by physicians and um, people of this similar provider type than they are and incorporating lots and lots of research and data they just like the LCD example. They're not random, right? They're not random. It's the, it's the standard of care that we, we hope to provide everybody access to. I 100% agree. And I want to circle back to what you were talking about earlier with incident two. Um, there's been a lot of, it, some of the behavioral health that have come to us have been, you know, talking about the PHG and the Medicare, what they say, and not all payers agree on incident two for telehealth. So I wanted to kind of just talk about that aspect of, of, uh, of the incident too. What are they misunderstanding about the requirements? So if the provider is not there physically, maybe they're at home, can they still see patients? Or if the um, patient is at home and you know the other provider can't be there, but can they be there virtually to m- monitor the condition if they're uh, assisting that uh, mid-level? I think we'll have to continue to watch how this changes and evolves as we come out of the public health emergency and everyone's policies and procedures tighten up. And I've been encouraging everyone that I work with and all my clients to start, start that process. Now Mm -hmm. let's think about what life looks like after the pandemic. And let's make sure that everything is compliant and everything's in order specific to incident two under Medicare, the patient has to have a, re- a relationship, an established, an established visit relationship and plan of care with a physician or a qualified healthcare provider, because they could be providing under the direction of a different provider, not just a physician. And then they have to be working under the direction of that provider under their plan of care. They're not setting their own plan of care. So I think those are concepts of incident two that people have to understand and often um, stretch or maybe just don't have their head around completely. And then the physician is required or the qualified healthcare provider that has ordered the care. Some physician is required to be immediately available. So during telehealth, that's been approved to be um, available by video audio connection but there needs to be documentation and proof that that person was available and that they were receiving direct supervision during the time that care was, was delivered. It goes back to the proof, you know, we're not there in the room with you going by what you're saying, but that 
what you're saying has to be in written form. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's what we For have. For the most part, I, I think everyone just does better when they don't do incident two. Yes, honestly. <laughs> Get everyone credentialed and have them working under their own MPI and their own license <laughs> yeah. and responsible for their own patients in, in as much as possible. I think that is just keeps people out of some murky water and is the best 100% way I encourage my clients to do business um, and to take care of their patients when they can. So I 100% agree. I think it just kind of keeps everything simple to the point you're, you're credentialed here. You're providing for this patient (laughs) keeps everything legal and simple in that way. Um, The article we were talking about did also talk about time documentation. And so that seems to be an issue sometimes, but we know that that many codes are time-based. So why does this begin happening or what do you think some things we can do to educate them on the importance of documenting time and how they should document it? I think people are getting mixed messages about time. Uh, I was talking with a psychiatrist recently who had been in contact with someone from their professional society who had said, oh, all you have to document is total time. Well, maybe that works for some places, but if if your reimbursement policy indicates that start and end time are a required element of documentation to have that service paid for, then you may have to document start and end time. So clinically, it may meet the guidelines of um, your professional standard of care. It may meet the guidelines as outlined in your CPT book, but it might not meet the guidelines as defined by your payer. Right. And that's where it's so important to understand the difference. So I Again, I just recommend documenting start and end time. I think that is a valuable piece of information. The other thing I encourage people to look at is print your print out your notes once in a while and look at your schedule, look at your progress note, look at your documentation of time, because sometimes I have observed that they we get a lot of incongruent information on one sheet of paper where Uh, a scheduling block might've been for 45 minutes, but the note says uh, 37 minutes. And then the schedule, you know, there's a third place that says another amount of time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to avoid conflicts of information like that. And sometimes it's hard to see when you're working in the EHR because it doesn't all come up on the same screen. And yet when you print it, you all of a sudden have conflicting information because of the way it's, it's not necessary. It, it, it has to do with maybe the way a scheduling block is set up, the way the physician documents, maybe the way another care provider gets in and documents on the same record. But those are just other things that I encourage people to take a look at because oftentimes they don't check it until they're called to send records. And then they start printing and looking at things and going, oh, oh wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. So I would, uh, yeah. So understand time spent in psychotherapy specifically um, is really important. Understanding that medical decision-making has to level the E&M code for psychiatrists. If they have an add-on psychotherapy that is um, conceptually challenging. Um, Psychiatrists don't 
in my experience, the psychiatrists that I've worked with, they say, I don't suddenly go, okay, we're done with medication management now. Now we're doing therapy. They're like, it's all like cohesive part of the same thing. It's not like a start and end. And that's really hard for them to think about. Um, so I think documenting the total time, documenting time spent in psychotherapy mm-hmm. with the best estimate right. and being as accurate and detailed as possible and, and making sure those notes stand alone, that there is a psychotherapy note and there's an ENM note Absolutely. and that those are different. Um, that's a, that's a big learning curve for people because they think of it very much together, very, co- very intertwined. Absolutely. And like we, we know in our, our jobs, we have to look at each individual note. Um, we have, we know in our jobs that we're going to code a chart. Um, we have to know certain pieces and we can do a lot to help these providers make it simple for them, you know, and a lot of them, you know, from my experience in different specialties, some of them do want to know what they can do to improve. Um, and if the doctor or the provider can see how it affects their financial situation, a lot of times that usually does it for them. If you, we can show them data, show them how this can affect their bottom dollar and how it can increase revenue by making these, these changes. Sometimes it's all about the money, right? It's all about the numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to see those mm-hmm. numbers. Yep. Yep. And um, one of the things I want to touch on too um, is the rules for office versus facility. Cause you did mention how you had experience in the facility versus the office. And that sometimes can have a bearing on how we interpret the rules, right? Yes. Certain things are paid differently service. Where is the service being provided? What place of service code is going on the billing sheet? So most of the outpatient providers I deal with are billing on a 1500, they're billing place of service 11, the office. And if they're in a private freestanding intensive outpatient program, it depends on how their contracts are set up and it depends on the payer, but sometimes they're billed with a revenue code and sometimes they're billed with a, a HICPIX code and Sometimes they include all the services in a per diem, and sometimes those services are carved out and they're billed separately, but those are still usually billed at a, as a place of service 11. But psychotherapy services are paid regardless of site of service. Um, site of service does not make a difference for psychotherapy services, but psychotherapy services do but services are paid based on a different fee schedule if you're in a facility. So I think that's important for people to understand and have accurate as well, is that if you're providing services in an outpatient hospital or a hospital setting, the hospital's going to have a facility fee and you're going to have your professional fee. So when I teach providers about the Medicare physician fee schedule and help them understand how that's calculated and the components of it being work relative value unit, the practice expense relative value unit, and the malpractice expense. I help them. If if you're providing care in a facility setting, 
the facility is getting paid for that practice expense piece, and you're getting paid for the part that you pay for the, the work RVU, that's your expertise, your medical expertise, and your malpractice that if you're paying for that malpractice. So that's just kind of another way to break it up and help them think about it and how that um, fee might be split up if they were paying if they were working in a different setting. That's excellent information. I think it's really important. Just on a basic level, when you're billing something out, you know, you want all those pieces to be accurate and payment is affected and everything we do is affected. <laughs> Payments affecting everything that we do, little pieces that we put in or don't put in. So mm-hmm. and understanding the contracts too is really, really important. If you are working with programs that are contracted, especially um, intensive outpatient, different partial hospital programs, I mean, it you have to go back to the contract and understand how the fee arrangement was negotiated and understand whether the patient owes separately for the physician. So if a physician sees the patient every day, they're in, in, um, in an intensive outpatient program, is that reimbursed separately or is the patient paying one fee for that? And making sure that the patient understands that going in because they may have copays every day mm-hmm. for seeing a provider that is paid separately or, or contracted out, carved out per se of that per diem. And then they may owe a coinsurance for the program itself. So those are really important nuances that sometimes aren't effectively communicated. Like I talk about this about learning to live with the contracts or understanding your obligations under the contracts. How does your business model support um, effective patient care, but also that you are compensated accurately based on how the contracts were negotiated? 100%. I agree. I really appreciate all this information that you're sharing with our listeners because it's so much more than, than just seeing the patient and submitting the claim, right? And I think some people just feel like, oh, that's just how it works. I put the charge in, put my order right. in, the EMR is going to do this little thing and my biller is going to bill it out and everything's going to get paid in a perfect world, right? <laughs> I wish. Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be great? Like if we could just <laughs> wouldn't like, that be great? have everything just go right and otherwise we would be out of job, right? And that would, that's what we do, right? We don't live in yeah. that kind of world. Um but how exciting things did happen in some ways for behavioral health. When the final rule came out, uh, we know the PHE was extended, but there were some little changes that kind of helped those patients who need the telehealth environment and it works for them. And I think some of these payers, especially Medicare, realized that it's something that needed to continue for yes. certain providers. So what are some yes. of the things that they should know about these changes that, of course, were effective April 1st? Yeah, I think uh, going forward, we are uh, we are going to see a continued support for telebehavioral health, telepsychiatry, and it will continue to improve access to these professionals for people who maybe didn't have access to them before, people in rural environments, people who have difficulty traveling, difficulty getting to an appointment. Um, It's definitely improved access. And I think that people are weighing the um, expense or the risks, I guess, of opening this up to the benefits for patients and providers. And going forward, though, I think people need to learn from 
the keep a close eye on the OIG work plan because when they rolled back the telehealth and improved access to care and opened it up to many, many more codes that previous and to providers and provider types who weren't previously covered, it's also going to heighten the scrutiny. So Jennifer, I would highly encourage anyone who is doing telehealth, who's continuing a telehealth practice beyond the, the PHE, that they keep a current list of what those approved CPT codes are. What are the approved codes? Which ones are on our charge master? And then look them up. Are we following the rules? Are we following Medicare policy and procedure? Do we have all the required elements in our documentation? Do we have treatment plans in place? Do we have the correct supervision? Are the right providers supervising if by chance we are operating under an incident too, or we're using students to provide some care? Are they even eligible in our state to be authorized to provide services without another licensed provider in the room or on the line with them? Um, are, are our providers documenting correctly? Let's look at the requirements. What does Medicare say about documenting time if psychotherapy is provided? Let's make sure that we have a system in place, policies and procedures for our, for our clinicians and our staff to make sure that they are documenting that the prompts are correct in the EHR so that those things aren't missed. Those required documentation elements aren't missed. Just taking a look at our templates um, is a huge opportunity to make sure that we aren't passing over things that are essential to creating a, a complete picture of that patient encounter. I would also do a set up a check and balance system to make sure that every service that's billed out has a signed treatment plan in place. It has the physician signed it, has the patient signed it. Is it current? Was it done two years ago or was it done a month ago? Is it still in effect? Because if it's out of date, let's get that patient scheduled and they're still a current patient. Let's get them scheduled for another visit and reset that treatment plan. Is it time for another diagnostic assessment and an updated treatment plan? And then making sure everything's signed. Make sure that the treatment plans are signed. Make sure that the notes are closed and signed by the responsible provider, the billing provider, the treating provider. Make sure those notes are signed before a bill is submitted. And often I also see in behavioral health is that typically our providers are doing their own coding. So let's make sure that they have access to information, that they understand the requirements of the CPT codes that they're billing, that their charge master includes all the CPT codes that, that they need and that are appropriate for their provider type. And that they also, I, I've also found limitations in how people's electronic health records are set up, that they don't have access to the full um, ICD-10 
that they just have some codes loaded instead of loading the entire ICD-10 and they end up just using a few diagnosis codes. So we didn't even touch on the topic of of diagnosis coding, but um, making sure that the clinician has a written diagnosis is very, very important. The clinician has to write the diagnosis. A diagnosis cannot be inferred by a coder and should never, of course, be inferred by by any other non-clinician person, but a licensed clinician has to write the diagnosis in the chart. So those are just some things I would would really encourage people to take a look at and consider in their organization how they can tighten up those things and learn from, you know, really the mistakes of others, um, how we can do our job better every day. Thank you so much for offering these suggestions. I think anyone listening, whether they're maybe a new coder, someone who wants to get into behavioral health and maybe the provider's office who's struggling, they're going to listen to this and be like, okay, I, I need to, to take care of this. Uh, or it's just someone who's interested in learning more about it. And so I think our listeners are really just going to enjoy this discussion. And I think auditing in general, these are very basic things that are not uncommon to other types of audits, documentation, many time-based codes, understanding incident two, all of these things are not just behavioral health issues. They are across the board, but we are, our different provider types and our different provider uh, practice settings often add some complexities to those Mm -hmm. uh, issues that, that transcend all our, all our specialties and providers. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on the show today, Lori. And of course we will put her information in our show notes. You can reach her. And so you can learn more about her. Thank you, Glory. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then.